This morning, our text comes from Genesis chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. Hear God's word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Erat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, in the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth the dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took her and brought her into, into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited over another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth <clears throat> went out by families from the ark. Gladys Allward was a British missionary, and she was serving in China in the 1930s in this town called Yangqing. And as she was serving in Yangqing, her fame started to grow throughout China, so much so that the local people named her Iweda, which means virtuous one. Well, this name would come to attest. In 1938, the Japanese started bombing China, and because of Gladys's fame, the Japanese had put a bounty out on her head. So she decided what most people would do, it's time to flee to safety. The problem was she had with her 100 orphans that she had adopted, and she was running her own private orphanage. So she had the decision to make, do we stay here and risk our lives, or do I, with my assistant, take 100 of these children and go through a 12-day hike through the mountains of China to reach Cyan, which was their safest place that they could reach. Well, trusting in God, Gladys takes her assistant, all these children, and they start off on a 12-day march where they have their supplies on the back, they're walking through the mountains, and they're sleeping outside. As they're walking, 
Yangqing is completely bombed by the Japanese. Roads are destroyed. And the only way that Gladys and these children are going to be able to make it to Siam is to cross the Yellow River. Sadly, the Yellow River is only crossed with a boat. And Gladys, nor any of these children, have a boat. So Gladys is sitting there, scared, wondering how in the world is she going to become safe? Is she, is she going to die here with these children? What is God going to do? How is she ever going to make it out alive? And it's in this frustration and sadness that one of her children looks up to her, and he starts to tell her about the story of Moses crossing the Red Sea by God's grace. And as he's telling her about Moses, he's, she's thinking, ah, this is really frustrating. She reminds him, she's like, listen, I'm not Moses. And the child looks up at her and he says, well, of course you're not Moses, but God's still God. And it was that little bit of hope. It was that trusting in God's promise. It was that childlike faith that gave the virtuous one enough strength to hold on and to see that by God's grace, they could potentially come to safety. The same thing could be said about Noah. Noah is stuck on a boat. He's with all of his family, all of his extended family, and all of these animals while the entire world has been judged and it's underwater. This allows us to ask at this point, how do we remain faithful in the middle of life's storms of affliction and pain? How do we remain faithful? We'll see in our text three things. We need to remind ourselves that God remembers, that God refines, and God replenishes. So as we try to wrap our mind around this text about what's taking place, we need to think back to Genesis 6. It's in Genesis 6 where God surveys all of creation and he sees that everything is completely wicked. Everyone is very far gone. So he calls Noah, he tells him to build the ark, and he tells Noah that he will judge the world with a flood. So Noah is obedient he builds the ark as God instructs them, and then in chapter seven, we see, just as God said, the flood waters came. Noah is now where we come to in chapter eight. Noah is on the boat, and we read in chapter eight, verse one, it reads, but God remembered. But God remembered. And this causes us to pause. It causes us to ask, how in the world does God remembering something help us to stay faithful? What is it about God's memory? Well, what's unique about God's memory that we see here is God's memory is tied directly to action. When God remembers something, it leads him to action. If you look and see in God's judgment of evil, water has bursted forth from the heavens. It's rising up from the seas for 40 days and 40 nights. There is torrential waters pouring over the face of the earth. And when that water stopped, the water remained above the mountains for 150 days. And notice, back in chapter seven, verse four, God tells Noah, he tells him, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but guess what God never tells Noah? 
He never tells him how long he's going to be on the boat. He never gives him the end. It's in the middle of all of God's judgment where God remembers Noah. God remembers the covenant that he made with Noah back in chapter six, verse 18, where God promised he would judge the world, but that he would spare Noah and his family. Now, if you're in Noah's shoes, you've got no idea when this water is going to recede. You have no idea how much longer you're gonna be on the boat. You can imagine he's anxious, he's nervous. He has no idea when the end is in sight. And like many of us, we might be thinking, you know, could that ark become Noah's coffin? That's a very fair question to ask. But what Noah has is the promises of God that God will accomplish what he says he's going to do when he says he's going to do it. It's often said that God's providence, and providence is a theological word that means the way God governs and preserves all things. It's often said that God's providence is best seen in reverse. And looking back, we see that God was very faithful to Noah. God remembered Noah, and this, this memory caused him to bring a wind to blow over the water and the waters started to recede. God remembered Noah and he stopped the rains. God remembered Noah and the ark came to rest on top of the mountains of Arat, which is in modern Armenia. But what are we to learn from this? What are we to take away from this? Well, it's in times of pain and hardship and suffering that our sin can cause us to question if God remembers us. God, I'm stuck in quarantine. Have you forgotten about me? God, my, my mind is, is going crazy. I feel like I'm never going to get out of here. My depression's getting worse. My marriage is getting worse. I've lost my job. I can't pay my bills. God, do you remember me? Are you even there? Professor Bruce Waltke described a Christian's response to pain this way. He said, he tells a story about one time his cat had captured a bird. And as he's trying to uh, get the bird out of the cat's grasps, he noticed that the, the wing of the bird was broken. So as he has this bird in his hands, this injured bird is fighting against Bruce the whole time. Bruce's hands are here to help him, but this bird is fighting for its life. He contrasts this with his daughter going to get her shots uh, at the doctor's office. As he brings his daughter to the doctor's office, she's crying, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy. And the whole time, she's got the death grip around his neck, clinging to her father with everything that she has. The point is that when times of pain and suffering comes, it should make us more like his child and less like the injured bird. You see, when the storms of affliction come, whether it's disease, a pandemic, physical or emotional pain, we must cling to the promises of God and remind ourselves that God remembers us, that he will keep us and he will sustain us. We turn to his word and we find these promises. One of those is Isaiah 41, verse 10. 
God says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous hand. Even this week during our community Bible reading, we came across Proverbs 30 verse five. It reads, every word of God proves true and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And this shield is exactly what Noah was clinging to in the middle of this massive worldwide flood. You see, not only was Noah able to be comforted by God remembering him, but Noah was able to stay faithful because he knew that God was refining him as well. In verses six through 14, we see God refines Noah primarily through waiting. And if you're anything like me, I don't like waiting. I'm a very impatient person. But by the time the ark had touched uh, ground, Noah and his family <clears throat> and all his extended family and all these animals, wall-to-wall animals, had been on this boat for the better part of a year. Could you imagine no quiet time for that long? Could you imagine the countless nights of poor sleep, constant work, not to mention the atrocious smells. Thank God he allows us to go nose blind, am I right? You can bet because of all these things, Noah was very eager to get off of this boat, very eager to get out of here. And it's in this eagerness uh, as to why he sends out the raven, and then he sends out the dove. And the dove is to go out and survey to find out if there's dry land. Now, Noah is staying put. He's being obedient to God. He's waiting on God, but he's simultaneously clinging to the promise. And finally, after two weeks, this dove returns with an olive leaf. Now, this is important for Noah because olive leaves, uh, particularly in ancient times, were signs that war was over. And not only that, but olive leaves and olives have the ability to sprout underwater. So what this was telling Noah was that new life was finally emerging. So Noah waits another seven days and releases the dove and it doesn't come back. And it's at this point where he has the confirmation that he can go to the top of the deck, pull the cover off, and finally stick his uh, caveman hair and beard out into the wind and experience joy and happiness and fresh air for the first time. Could you imagine the joy he felt seeing that God's promises were coming true? What joy. Now what's interesting to see in this text is there's three series of seven days. There's three series of seven days. What this is teaching us is that Noah was keeping a weekly cycle and he was keeping the Sabbath. This means for us that Noah was still worshiping in the middle of this storm despite all of the terrible circumstances that he was in. And when I think about Noah here, I can't help but to think about the story of Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy. They were in a female barracks in a concentration camp uh, in World War II. 
Betsy sneaks a Bible into their barracks and they're having these Bible studies and Betsy tells Corey, she says, we should give thanks, God's word says, in all circumstances. We should give thanks for everything. And Betsy tells Corey, we should even give thanks for the fleas. Well, in their barracks, it was absolutely disgusting. It was overrun with fleas. And what they noticed was after several weeks, the guards who would normally come in to harass them and beat them and hurt them, they weren't showing up. After these several weeks, they start to put two and two together and it slowly trickles back to them a report that the guards don't want to mess with this particular barracks because the fleas were so terrible. Now, Corey, who refused to give thanks for the fleas to start with, learns that the fleas are the reason why they aren't getting beat anymore. So she stops dead in her tracks and humbly thanks God for these fleas as she's in the middle of a concentration camp. What are we to learn from Corey? What are we to learn from Noah, Noah here as, as they're waiting on God in the middle of these terrible circumstances. We learn that God uses all things, the good, the bad, the smelly, the fleas. He uses all these things to refine us, to make us more like Jesus. Because often in times of challenge and stress, that causes us to cling to Jesus more than ever. A French theologian by the name of Francois Fignolon writes this. He says, you think it's spiritually important to have free time to be alone with God, and it is, but I tell you, you will get just as close to him by embracing the cross in your life and not always seeking to experience tender moments in the presence of God. When the torrential floods of suffering sweep you away, let yourself be carried off with no regret. Don't you know you will find God in the torrent too. This is exactly what Noah is experiencing. And we find this even taught in the New Testament from the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, three through five. He says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, he, who has been given to us. Where are you this morning? You find yourself stuck at home around a lot of people maybe, terrible smells from diapers and kids who refuse to take baths. Maybe even find yourself with animals that are getting on your nerves that you live with. Are you longing and aching and eager for a time where you can just open your door and go outside without having to wear a mask and experience freedom again? If that's you this morning, please remind yourself that this virus and that this season is not happening by accident. God is using this time to grow you. God is using this time to make you stronger. God is using this time to make you more like Jesus. During this epidemic, we're learning several things, particularly 
we're learning more and more about our sinfulness and our idolatry, but simultaneously, we're learning more about our weakness. This epidemic is revealing to us just how fragile and needy we really are. And what God is doing is allowing us to see our weakness and to take this as an opportunity to cast our fears and anxieties and our worries on him and find that he is with you in the middle of your pain. God isn't sitting back in the corner saying, oh man, that's really bad. No, God is with you by his spirit and he's with you. He knows your pain. He has experienced this pain. And it's in Christ living in you by faith that allows you to worship him and stay steady in this storm like Noah. So as you continue to fight for your sanity, as you continue every day to give one more shot at keeping your head up and keeping your eyes fixated on Jesus, even if those eyes are welled up with tears and pain. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 1.5, who says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So we've seen that God remembers. We've seen that God refines Finally, we see how God replenishes, which helps us to stay faithful in the middle of the storm. And we see that in verses 15 through 19. It's here where God explicitly tells Noah to exit with his family, to exit with all of the livestock. And Noah, as he's done throughout several chapters, is absolutely obedient. God calls Noah and all of his family and all these animals to be fruitful and multiply. And as we've navigated our way through Genesis over the last several months, this should bring to mind God's commandment to Adam in Genesis 1. What God is doing is he's recreating earth and he's using Noah and his family and these animals to go out and replenish this renewed land. Let's not miss the fact that this is absolute amazing grace here. God has surveyed the world, and in his righteousness and his holiness, he was in the absolute right to completely wipe out everyone. God has the right to judge sin, but in God's grace, he saved a remnant. And he takes this remnant and he brings them into this new land. That is Amazing grace, but there's a massive problem. It's a massive problem here. Noah and his family are still humans. Evil exists, not just out in the world, but evil exists in their hearts, and the same is true for us. It's not the world out there that makes everything terrible. We make things terrible, our hearts are sinful, and God recognizes this. He even goes on to say in chapter nine, verse 22, he says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And just a few verses later, we'll see next week in the weeks to come that Noah proved God true by failing big time. What this story does is it makes us long 
for a better Noah to come. This story makes us long for a person to come who wouldn't have sin. We long for one to be perfectly righteous, a man that would come and live in perfect sinless obedience, who would rescue a remnant of people and would bring them into a new land. And we learn in the New Testament that that person was Jesus. But looking back, there's striking parallels between Noah and Jesus. Notice that Noah was a righteous man who brought with him his family into this wooden boat to escape judgment and death. Then after judgment, Noah brings uh, all of his family into a revitalized world, and he's told to multiply image bearers of God all over it. In Jesus, we see Noah's story, but perfectly realized. Jesus was a perfectly righteous man who was brought to a wooden cross, not to save himself, but to die for the sins of all who would trust in him. Not only does he invite us to trust in him, but trusting in Jesus saves us from the coming judgment. And he also calls his followers, called disciples, to go into the world and to replicate other image bearers of Jesus all through the world by all of us taking the gospel to our friends and neighbors and loved ones. Finally, we know that Jesus will return and judge the world, but for those who trust in him, he will bring us safely into a new heavens and new earth with no more sin, no more pain, no more viruses, no more evil. And just like Noah, sitting in that boat, longing for a day where his suffering would be over, sitting and waiting for the day when God would renew all things, we too, like Noah, can look forward to the day where Christ will return and establish a new heavens and new earth and bring us there safely. You see, it's this future-focused faith that takes our eyes off of our circumstances and it fixates the eyes of our heart on Jesus and it has the ability to take our immediate pain and transform it by connecting us with the glory that's to come. A photographer was taking pictures of first graders at an elementary school for their school photos. And uh, this one little girl in particular was very nervous, very uptight. And so he starts having small talk with her. And he looks at her and he says, little girl, what are you going to be when you grow up? And this little girl looks right at him and she says, tired, tired. That hits extra hard right now. You see, tired and worn out, that's exactly where Gladys was with her children. Tired, worn out, exhausted, not knowing how they're ever going to make it to safety. And as they're standing at the Yellow River, that same child says, we should sing and we should pray. And in the dead of night with childlike faith, Gladys and this little hundred person dirty choir just start singing at the top of their lungs to God, not knowing what in the world's gonna happen, but this little choir is singing their hearts out. 
Well, as they're singing, sound travels really well over water, and around the bend that they couldn't see, there was a Chinese police officer there with a boat. And he hears this little ragtag choir singing, and he drives his boat around the bend and finds Gladys and all these children, worn out, hungry, dirty, tired, beaten down and exhausted, and he carries them across the Yellow River to safety. Are you like Gladys and tired? Not just physically tired, but emotionally tired, spiritually tired. Are you absolutely worn out from being stuck at home? Is your anxiety and depression and bipolar, is it getting worse? Is your marriage struggling? Are you wondering how in the world am I going to stay faithful in this storm? Know just like Noah that God remembers you. He remembers you, that he's refining you. And the pain that you are experiencing is building character and faith in you. Remind yourself that today God is helping you to look forward to a time where there will be no more pain. He's helping you to see that this isn't your home, that you were not created to suffer like this. He's helping you see that there is something better waiting for you, and that's eternity with him. And you can have that assurance this morning by trusting in Jesus. In the meantime, what are we gonna do? What are you gonna do right now? If I could encourage you to do anything, it's to cling to God's word. We know that God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. Cling to this promise, and I'll close with Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Church, cling to that good news this morning. Let us pray. Father, where would we be without your word? Where would we be without Jesus who has come to earth, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and has risen from the grave. If Jesus isn't risen, Father, we are to be most pitied, but we know he has risen. As we've just celebrated Easter, we know that he is alive, that he is with us. He has sent his spirit to minister to us, and Father, we come to you needy, tired, exhausted, beat down. We feel forgotten. We feel like we can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, and if there is light, we might think it's a train coming. Father, would you by your spirit, break through to us and give us your peace that passes understanding. Calm our hearts. Help us to trust in you like that little girl clinging to her father's neck. Help us to trust in you, our shield, our refuge and strength. Father, even as we come to sing, Father, even if we can't even make the words out of our mouth because they're clouded with tears, Father, would you hear our sighs and would you Receive glory from that.
Father, we thank you that this life isn't the end for us. Our story is not over. There is a time where we will never experience this again. Father, help us to have courage and strength and faith until that time. And we pray this for your sake and glory, Jesus.